Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we'll be uh, this morning. We're looking at verses 4 through 9. So, you know, in the last uh, maybe month or so, we've been walking through a series entitled The Heart of Evangelism, and this is based on uh, Jaron Barr's book by that same title. And we've talked about this idea that often we think about evangelism in this uh, maybe compartmentalized area of our life where we will uh, go on a Sunday afternoon and knock on doors or maybe an evangelist to someone we think about who is professionally trained to fight for the faith, right? So that's kind of their job and what they do. But what we've seen thus far is that biblical evangelism is actually an entire lifestyle where the Christian life that each and every Christian is called on mission for God to an evangelistic lifestyle. Remember last week we saw that we are called to be prepared to make a defense for the gospel in word and in deed in all of our life. We should be showing and proclaiming Christ and the hope that is in us. So today we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and we look uh, to a text that speaks about uh, the foundation of our salvation and what I would argue is a foundation of evangelism as a whole. So let's go ahead and turn to God's Word this morning. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 4 through 9. I'm giving us a little context. It's in a break of a paragraph. So if you're opening a physical Bible, you'll see that. For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we come before you, uh, humbled this morning that you uh, do use us uh, in this work of evangelism, uh, despite our many shortcomings. And God, we come to your, your throne today, submitting to the fact that you are the one who changes hearts. You are the one who saves sinners. You are the one that brings flesh to a heart of stone. And Father, we pray and we plead that these words of that you have given us through the Apostle Paul in this book will not only go into our hearts, but into our hands as we live, as we think, as we work. Lord, that you would change us in this time. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, in our culture, uh, we love stories about a hero going and saving people in distress. We love that narrative, right? You can watch TV shows, read fiction books. There are many movies with this very similar plot line, right? The twists are all different, but it's the same plot. There is a hero chasing after someone in distress, and they save them. A few movies recently, Star Wars Episode Four. you know, an old classic, Princess Leia is taken away uh, for extreme interrogation, and her urgent plea is, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Right? And that sets a trajectory for the movie where they go on a hero quest which results in her being captured and coming back home. Think about Toy Story 2, the second one, that Woody is stolen at a yard sale by a man who is collecting toys, right? 
And Buzz Lightyear and the crew, they find out about this and they set off to go bring Woody home and they end up doing so. Most recently in Top Gun Maverick, such a good movie, I know it's not appropriate for everyone, but it was a fantastic, you know, you don't always get this where it's like a a 20-year gap in a movie and they redo one and it's so good. But in Top Gun Maverick, Tom Cruise again plays this uh, character Maverick and he leads a crew of fighter pilots to destroy an enemy's uranium facility. And, you know, the whole movie is about them training. And once they get there and they've made it through this, indefi- this incredibly difficult, narrow path, this canyon, they destroy the facility and they break way up this mountain. The top of the mountain, they trigger the motion-censored missiles. If you've seen the movie, it just, I watch it this week, and it's just fantastic. It's such, such good, like, narrative. It's so good. You've got to watch it if you haven't. And... So there are these motion-censored missiles, and they're just shooting all over the place, and they're doing all these countermeasures. And Maverick, Tom Cruise's character, sees a fellow pilot, a younger man, about to get hit, and he doubles back, and he protects him. But at the same time, Maverick gets shot down. They say, Maverick, Maverick, he's down. And And the commander from... The carrier says, everyone must return back to the carrier. Do not go back. And they pound their steering wheels and they say, we want to go back, but they listen. But moments later in the movie, you know that the scene, it shows one of the pilots, the pilot that was rescued by Maverick, turning around. He parachutes out and he finds Maverick. They make it out of, I'm sorry, I'm ruining the movie for you. They make it out of enemy territory, right? We love stories like this. It's just so close to our heart. And we can often think about evangelism in the same way. That we are the hero with the good news. Well, part of that is true. We are sent out to go and rescue those in distress. But the truth is, unlike the heroes in our favorite movies that we love so much, we cannot save anyone on our own. We are finite human beings. We cannot save anyone from their sin. So in the grand narrative of Scripture, if you look at this topic in the grand narrative of Scripture, it's not the evangelist in our text today. It's not Paul. It's not Apollos who, or anyone else who takes credit for the salvation of sinners. It is God alone who is the hero of the text. It is God alone who is the one who can save the heart of a sinner. So while God uses his people, we talked about this last week, to participate in kingdom work for the kingdom coming to the earth, right? At the same time, we know that saving sinners is always God's prerogative. So today, our big idea, our theme is this. It should be up on the screens. This will be in your uh, your bulletin as as, as well as the outline. Is that God is the author of salvation. So Christians humbly rely on his work in evangelism. God is the author of salvation, so Christians humbly rely on his work in evangelism. We're going to look at two things. Uh, first, we're going to look at God the grower. This is verses 6 through 7. And then secondly, people, the planters, verses 4 through 5. Okay, so let's first look first at God the grower. This is uh, verse 6. It says this, I planted, this is Paul speaking, remember that. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So you can see here that Paul is using a metaphor of farming, right? That some have tilled the ground. They have planted the seed into the ground. Others have watered the seed. 
but another altogether outside of those two people who have done a lot of work have caused the plant to grow. Paul speaks here about he, how he and Apollos, they, their church leaders, both related to the church in Corinth, this Corinthian church, that, that Paul planted the church, but when he had to leave and go somewhere else, it was Apollos who tended the flock once Paul left. But at the same time, when he says, yes, these men had instrumental uh, effort that went into the raising of these people of God, it was not either of them who caused the growth in the people. It was God alone who grew the church. It was God alone who grew the people. And in this metaphor, if we think about, it was God who caused the plant to come out of the earth. You know, we're in springtime now. If you have plants like lantanas that go dormant over the winter time, like you trim them back, right? And I have lantanas, like I have four of them. Only three are coming back, which is I'm a little worried about right now. But you know that the springtime, they're starting to come back, right? And I water my plants. I'm very diligent with that. But it's not me who's causing the growth. If it were me, I would have all four lantanas coming up and not just three, right? But that's a picture that he's giving us for us, right? Is that it is God who alone, who reveals himself, gives knowledge and understanding of the work of Christ applied to a believer that causes the growth. So it goes on in verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So he goes as far as to say is that people, Paul, I'm sure many of us, if not all of us in the room, know this guy's name, maybe the biggest evangelist of all time, right? Even overshadowing Billy Graham that we talked about last week, right? Like we know this, we know him. He's a big guy in evangelism. But he's saying here, Paul, Apollos, they're nothing. It's not to say that they're unimportant, but they are mere farmhands. They don't own the field. They don't own the crop. They don't cause the plant to grow. But God, the owner of the field, the owner of the crop, the giver of life, is the one who brings the growth. Both the farmhand and the crop belong to God. In other words, in the analogy worked itself out. God's people and the people God, God's people are trying to witness to both belong to God. So the work of salvation belongs to God alone. We see the scripture, uh, this theme throughout Scripture. In Jonah's prayer, in the belly of the whale, he's been rebellious, so a big fish eats him. It's an interesting story in itself. The end of his prayer, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Paul in Ephesians says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift, a gift of God. In Titus 3, he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Sing this truth today in our text It's not the only place we see it. It runs throughout Scripture that God alone is the author of salvation. So we're talking about evangelism. You know, you can kind of go one of two ways with this. Often we think, well, God is the author of salvation, so why am I even doing anything at all? I just sit on my hands, right? This is why, like, even there's, like, uh, an antidote, the frozen chosen. They all call Presbyterians, right? I heard that a lot in seminary because they sit still because God is sovereign and he does the work. 
So what do we do with this? I think the first thing that we need to see is that for you and for me as a Christian, it relieves us from the pressure to save the people around us, right? It is not our prerogative to, to save. From the text, we see that it is God who saves. It got, it's God who causes hearts of stone to be turned to hearts of flesh. So when we enter into this topic of evangelism, often the pressure can come towards the believer. Say, oh man, I've got to get out there and do some stuff. I've got I to gotta proclaim Jesus. And while some of that conviction is probably good and healthy, at the same time we can do that too hard on ourselves because we can put the onus on us. That actually it's my prerogative as a Christian to go save people. But in our text, and I would say the Bible as a whole, we see that salvation is God's prerogative. And that has to be the foundation of evangelism. It has to be. Well, God uses us as a vessel of his grace to the world to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, his son, the work of conversion. It belongs to him alone. So you can rest in that truth that we serve a God who is bigger than any of our efforts. And the truth is, if you walk with some people for a long time and they do come to Christ, he has been working a long time before you even enter the picture. That he is working outside of our efforts, right? The second thing, as we're resting in what God has done, know that at the same time, God does use his people to be a part of the work. That God's call for God's people is never to convert people But there is still a call, and the call is to be faithful in proclaiming Christ. The call is not in a specific result. I want you to think about this in your own life, because often we are measured by the result in our life. So that translates into our Christian life very easily. Think about your work, marriage, school. Did you fulfill your job requirement at your work? Did you complete the task? You are measured on that. In school, did you finish the assignment? How well did you do? Well, your grade will tell us, right? So we can be tempted to think of evangelism in the same way. How well are we evangelizing is then measured by how many people are converted. See how that transfers very easily. But that's not the biblical picture. We actually see the biblical picture is that God is the one who saves. The missional Christians are not called to convert people, but simply to be faithful in proclaiming Christ in word and in deed. And it does two things for us. And I think this is so, so, so important. You've got to hear this if you hear anything. Okay? That means in evangelism, we can take the wins without pride. And we can take the losses without shame. We can take the wins without pride. Meaning that you can walk with someone and do the things that we talked about last week and, and, and live where you live, work, and play, walking alongside them, proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. And you can see them come to Christ and what a beautiful thing that is. And if you're anything like me, at times, we could walk away from that situation saying, man, I am, I am hot stuff, right? I am articulate. I know my theology. I am convincing, but if this is the foundation that we walk away from evangelism and somebody being converted to Christ and saying, it was all him. There's no pride in me. I only boast in Jesus and his work. At the same time, the other side, in evangelism, that we can take the losses without shame. The year after year after year of pouring into your friends, your family, your coworkers, and there's no fruit. You feel like you failed. But with this, 
But the message that he's giving us, it's God's prerogative to save them. So there's no shame. Your call as a Christian is to be faithful, not to save other people. So we need to be reliant upon God for our salvation. Not only our salvation, but for the salvation of those we are witnessing to. If we think about this idea of reliance, reliance upon God because it is Him who works, what does that look like? I think for first and foremost, it's going to send God's people to their knees in prayer. Seeing our inability to save our friends, our family, our coworkers, it should send us to our knees saying, God, I can't do anything. I'm not articulate. I can't save them. Pleading that the Lord will awaken their hearts to the beauty of the gospel. So let's look secondly at people, the planters. This is verses 4 and 5. It says this, For when one says, I follow Paul, and the, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. So the context of this is that Paul is addressing these Christians in the Corinthian church are arguing over who is really like their pastor, or who had the most effect on their Christian walk. Some follow Paul. I know that guy, I was there in the beginning, and he was the one that told me about Jesus, and that he's the man, right? Some other people came later and said, oh no, actually, I don't even know Paul. He had already left, so I, I follow Apollos. And maybe one, for the, one of these men had more influence than the other in their conversion. But Paul rebukes them, saying you're being merely human. This is saying you're acting like you're not redeemed, like you don't know Jesus, like you don't have the knowledge of Christ in your mind and in your heart because they are attributing the work of salvation to a human, and it's not Jesus. They're, so here, Paul is correcting them. He's saying they're both servants, Paul and Apollos. They're one. They're one servant pointing to their king, Jesus. And this word servant in the lexicon is defined as this, one who serves as an intermediary in a transaction, an agent or a courier. That's what the ministers were. That's what he's saying. These men are couriers of the gospel. They are one who takes the gospel out, the agent in which the gospel is proclaimed. And I would say that is the call of the Christian, to be a courier for the gospel, to proclaim it. Christians are the agents of the proclamation of Jesus. But it is the Lord who brings the growth. Last week we saw that we need to be prepared in word and in deed. Remember, we talked about those things actually in reverse order. We talked about deed first and then word. For the defense of the hope that is in us in Christ. And today I want us to step back and see that if God is the author of salvation and we are unable to save anyone in ourselves, where do we begin in our missional life? Where do we begin in evangelism? I already gave you the answer. It's by praying. Because we are dependent upon God to save the people we are trying to witness to. It, we are dependent 100% upon Him. So this is all setting the stage for us to have a proper understanding of our role in evangelism. Right? That we must humbly enter into evangelism knowing that it's actually God's work. He's going before us. He's working where we can't see. This humility should lead us to our knees in prayer. And in Colossians 
Paul speaks this to this church in uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us also, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So we are dependent upon the work of God, so we must pray. We see here specifically that we should pray that the door gets open for the gospel. Right? J.I. Packer in his evangelism book says, we are to preach because without the knowledge of the gospel, no man can be saved. But we are to pray because only the sovereign Holy Spirit in us and in men's hearts can make our preaching effective to man's salvation. And God will not send his spirit where there is no prayer. We must be fervently praying for those around us, all the while proclaiming in word and in deed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think it's helpful for us to think about where to pray, how to pray, right? Who are we going to pray for? I think we need to first start in realizing that God has really put us into family systems, right? So I'm going to say this broadly. Uh, coming back to El Paso, I learned a little bit of Spanish growing up, but I knew that I would learn some more as I was here. Spanish is spoken much more here than it is in Las Cruces. And one of the first words, the first word I learned here was hermano, because I went to my first session meeting, and Chuck greeted every other, every other member of the session as hermano, their brother. Right? And so I want us to think broadly about family the people that you are already close with. In your nuclear family, yes. A ring outside of that, like many El Pasoans have, yes. But also the ring outside of that. That these are the people that already have your trust. That you're already close with. We need to be praying for those people. These people already trust you. They trust who you are. Secondly, I think we should also pray for those, remember we talked about live, we need to evangelize where we live, work, and play those areas. We need to be praying for those people. And often, over time, some of these people over here might get into the hermano stage, right? They might come over here as you get to know them better. But it's, it's helpful for me. I'm a category guy to have some categories on who we pray for. The thing is that we need to actually pray for them, too. Jeremy in his class said, you, as a Christian, you praying, you saying you're going to pray for someone and not praying for them is worse than a non-believer. I was like, oh, I'm not going to unhear that one right? If, it, we, if we're going to say, I'll be praying for you, pray for them. I'm going to encourage you in this way, even in the moment, pray for them. Often, because I'm, I'm forgetful, I walk away and I say, I'm going to pray for you. I will literally, in the next one minute, pray for them. In a mind, 15 seconds at the bare minimum. I'm going to pray for them right then, because I want to be faithful to that, I want to have a routine. I'm saying, I am actually going to bring this need to the Lord, like I say, I'm going to. So that's who, what, what, do we, what should we pray for? First, I think we need to go back to our text and realize that we need the Spirit's work. It is God who saves. So we need to pray that the Spirit works in their life. When Jesus foretells of the Holy Spirit coming in John chapter 16, he says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and, justice and judgment. So that's what we need to pray. That the Lord, the Spirit, would soften the hearts of the people we're trying to reach. They would see their sin and the beauty of Christ, the one who clothes them in righteousness. 
Secondly, I would say we need to pray for open doors. This is exactly what the Colossian text says, that when you build a relationship with people, pray that the Lord will send a time for you to proclaim the gospel to them. They would see it and hear it and understand it. And lastly, I would say, and this is maybe the most important of what to pray for. After praying for the Spirit's work, that's definitely the most important one. But when you're thinking about yourself, that we need to pray for courage, for energy, for love. If you're anything like me, we don't like to be rejected. We don't like to be looked down upon. We often fear what people are going to think about us, so this topic doesn't even come up. But let us have courage to just love people well. And the Spirit would open their heart and that we would be able to speak into that. All the while, we know that when we enter into conversations like this, it can be like a can of worms that explodes, right? It takes time. It takes energy. Maybe that's the reason that some of us don't enter into this. Like I, I, don't, I don't have the bandwidth. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't want to have hours of my time taken away. But maybe that's where you need to pray for yourself. That you would have the energy, the love that comes only from Christ and out through you to other people. Pray that the Lord would renew your strength and bring love for that person. The thing is, if we kind of, to wrap it all up, if we see this idea of evangelism in this way, we get to rest in the work of Christ first for us in this room. You get to rest in what Jesus has done for you. So if all these things we talk about in this whole series, we're going to talk about reaching the world for Christ, right? If you fail on every single time you try, you don't do it. You aren't faithful. You can still rest because your worth is not defined in what you do, but it's what has been done for you in Jesus. That we rest in his life, his death, his resurrection because he fulfilled the law for us. And he was the proclamation of life coming to the world. And sin and death did not beat him but he resurrected and beat sin and death once and for all for us. So church, we can rest in the fact that God has redeemed you from your own sin, from your shortcomings. And for many of us, I've told you many stories about this in my own life, but there's probably someone who prayed for you for many years and the Lord heard that prayer and the Holy Spirit came and regenerated your heart and applied the work of Christ to you and your eyes were open to the gospel. I don't know how many times, I, I say this a lot, but it just, it just, it happened in the last like two weeks. I see someone in Las Cruces and they're like, oh yeah, I changed your diaper. I'm like, oh, it's kind of weird. But I'm like, thank you for being faithful in the church when I needed it, when I was a baby. Thank you for praying for me in the nursery. You know what? The Lord heard that prayer. A lot of these people don't know. I'm a minister now, I tell them. And I said, a lot of this, the Lord heard the prayer of the people that were around me, and they saved, he saved my heart, right? So a lot of us have that narrative. There's been people praying for us, and that's why we're in this room, knowing Jesus. So now we can see that as we are believers who rest in Jesus, we are free from any shame. We are free from the temptation to pride that we can trust in the Lord, knowing that he is going before us in this work, that the Lord is at work in your life and in the life of those around you. Let us pray together.
God, we come before you uh, desiring uh, to be used by you at the same time knowing that you are the one who saves sinners. And Father, we are grateful for that, that we are not measured upon our merit, but the merit of your Son, Jesus Christ. And in that, you have given us freedom to live for you, not only in proclaiming Christ, but in every avenue of our life. God, we come to your table now to be nourished by the work of your Son. Father, we pray that you would be with us here. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.